You're listening to Berlin Psychoanalytic Podcast. Jakob Lusensky in conversation with Dr. Donald Carvest. I got curious because I heard in one of those YouTube videos that you actually started off as a Jungian, but uh, converted into uh, Freudianism. Uh, yes. Could you share something about this? Yes, um, I've... As a very young man, I guess even in high school, I was drawn, well, no, very early on. I think uh, age 14, I discovered uh, Eric Fromm's um, um, My Encounter with Marx and Freud, I think is the subtitle of that book my father was reading. I was always trying to keep up with my father, but sometimes he was reading Einstein and and uh, Alfred North Whitehead, and that was a little beyond me, but uh, I grabbed the, the Freud lectures and uh, immediately started bugging people to try to interpret their dreams over breakfast and whatever. I formed the intention to become a psychoanalyst at that, at that point, about 14. Um, uh, whenever my father on the weekends would would uh, not have a nurse. He was a family doctor and some kid would fall off a bike and cut his head open and I'd be playing, I'd be eight or 10 years of age upstairs and my father would call me down to the surgery while he was stitching up the kid's head and he would want me to clip the stitches. And invariably I wound up fainted uh, out cold on the floor. This happened about three or four times, but it didn't alter my plan because I thought you had to be a physician to be a psychoanalyst. Um, the crisis came in first year university when I realized there was no way that I was going to do all of that chemistry, biology, let alone um, cadavers and rectal examinations. So I switched into social and philosophical studies. And I thought my career as a psychoanalyst was over. It took a couple of years for me to learn that Eric Fromm actually was a sociologist and also a psychoanalyst. When I discovered the existence of non-medical analysis, then um, I immediately formed the intention to get a PhD and then go to the Institute to train. Somewhere in there, even though I actually started off as a Freudian, uh, I got very interested in Jung. Uh, I was reading a lot of Jung and there was an analytical psychology um, organization in in my city and I started to attend meetings quite regularly uh, I found it of philosophical and um, spiritual interest but I was a very troubled young man um, I, I I couldn't sustain a relationship with a female because usually there were at least two or three females on the hook at any one time. And uh, this made me pretty anxious and, and made me pretty guilty. And um, I, I knew that I ha it wasn't enough for me to move through the persona, briefly hang out in the shadow and then move on to what the Jungians in those days were really interested in, which was the archetypes of the collective unconscious. I knew my personal unconscious needed a lot of work. Um, so I reverted to my original Freudianism and I sought out a Freudian analyst. Well, first of all, I sought out a lot of trendy 
1960s therapies, primal screen, transactional analysis, gestalt. They were all a total waste of time for me. I couldn't connect to these things at all. Finally, a psychiatrist who I was with for six months, and we were getting nowhere because he was more narcissistic even than me. Um, finally, when I quit him, he recommended I try the man down the hall who was a psychoanalyst. I said, what, they, they still do that? I thought the couch went out with like the horse and buggy, you know, they're still doing it. He said, yes, he's a very good man. Um, I recommend him. So six months later, I called him. Uh, within a week or two of being on the couch, uh, I was not only in love with him, uh, but I was a total convert to clinical psychoanalysis, and uh, he helped me greatly. Uh, I subsequently had three other analyses. Um, so that's how I stopped reading Jung then. Now, I know the Jungians have changed. I know, especially in England, the modern Jungians have merged almost with object relations theory. They're a, a very different, uh, a lot of them are very different than they were back in the day. But uh, that's why I stopped reading. My son is a candidate in analytic training here, and he's a very kind of alternative guy, and he's always been reading Jung, and he's always sending me juicy passages of wisdom from Jung, uh, because he knows I haven't given Jung a, a fair shake. Um, but now I, I have the excuse of being too blind to read him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, something that I really enjoy with with uh, following your work is that you that you are not staying strictly with with the psychoanalytic thinking, but you you're always or often grounding it also in analogies that you take from the Bible or you from philosophy and such. And although you you're very clinical, you're 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 sort of um, amplifying on your material a lot through through uh, contextualizing, for example, within uh, religious analogies and such. And I was wondering a little bit about this, your interest uh, in, 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 yeah, in the religious and the spirituality and mm -hmm. how that has yeah, developed throughout your life and how it is to, to speak about that in a psychoanalytic uh, setting. Right. Well, um... I mentioned my father, he was uh, something like a deist. He had some vague notion of a higher power, but he rarely darkened the doors of a church. And uh, our, the backyard of our house abutted on the Anglican church. Um, they sent me. Um, my mother, I was in the choir. My mother ironed. My, I, I, They sent me. They only came when I was singing a solo or something, you know. Uh, my father couldn't make any sense of the whole thing of Jesus Christ. Um, so I, I went to church. It became very important to me. Um, I loved the sermons. We had a particularly good uh, rector of the church, and he was a family friend. He was always trying to convert my father. Um, and uh, um, the, the beauty, the hymns. The music, I had a good voice. I got a lot of praise for my singing. Um, things were not happy at home. My mother was drifting into alcoholism. I took refuge in the church. Um, but then adolescence happened. I discovered girls, masturbation, and I discovered in my father's 
library, a book by Bertrand Russell called Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, the combination of these circumstances meant that uh, I was done with my Anglican Christianity. I turned radically away from it. My heroes were all of the passionate atheists of the West, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Freud, Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, and for, you know, 30 years, I, I preached the gospel of atheism from my pulpit lectern at the university. Um, if a little girl from an evangelical background uh, ran crying from my class, that was a notch on my atheistic gun, you know, I grow up uh, already, was my attitude. Um, but <clears throat> I remember one year, there was a black Anglican nun woman in my class. She was in her 40s, I would say. And she really liked me. And whenever I would say disparaging or caustic things about religion, she would look at me with her big eyes and I could feel that she was forgiving me. Uh, she haunted me through her forgiveness. I, it was like she was new. She knew I was going to come home one day. Um, uh, well, she was right. In my 40s, I, I had a reconversion. Um, my father died. It so happened in a Catholic hospital because he'd fallen and broken his hip and he wound up in that hospital instead of the heart hospital. And so as he lay in a coma for three weeks, there was a crucifix at, on the wall right above his bed. And it was April and it was hot and he would throw off the covers and he was wasting away. And you could see his rib cage through the thin old skin. And I would look and, you know, I, I suddenly realized that's what the crucifix is about. It's about dying. It's about how we all must die. We're all going to follow in this path. Um, uh, and that started something. And uh, then a couple of years later, um, I, uh, I got around to impregnating my wife and I was becoming a father. But I think even before the baby was born, um, I, I shocked my wife one day. We were staying in the country and um, I got up on a Sunday morning and I was putting on a jacket and a tie, rare for me. And she, what? She wakes up, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to church. And I had to drive into a little town nearby. Uh, she started laughing. Uh, she knew I'd been studying theology for years, even during my atheism. I would go to the bookstore looking for something Marxist, but I'd wind up in the basement where they stored the theology. And I would walk out of the bookstore with eight theological texts, Boltzmann, Bonhoeffer, Tillich, whatever. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. I mean, I was reading these guys all along. I was so impressed with the, their intelligence, and I was so impressed with their critique of Freud, because they put their finger on the fundamental problem in Freud, his naturalization of human destructiveness, as if it's an instinct, as if it came from the animal in man, when in fact it comes from what is most unique about man. Um, I knew that. 
And um, it seemed irrelevant to the thesis I was trying to write, but it turned out to be completely irrelevant. The thesis I ended up writing was very influenced by, by these theological uh, uh, perspectives. So even before I took the step of going back to church, I was very familiar with liberal existentialist theology, John Macquarie, reading the gospel through Heidegger. You know, I was all that was already there. I mean, someone a Heidegger would say um, the cathedral was already built; it was just empty. Um, but then I went back to church, and the cathedral was not empty anymore. I, I caught up affectively and emotionally with where my head <laughs> was already prepared to be. Um, I remember walking into that church. My wife was laughing because she was saying, oh, yeah, in small town Ontario, in this little dinky town, you're going to find some preacher who's going to uh, convey Christianity in your style, Bonhoeffer, Tillich, whatever. Well, I went to the church, and the preacher was a product of the Toronto School of Theology. He, he built his sermon around the critique of, 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 of the letter rather than the spirit, the confusion of our faith with, um, with the stained glass and the beautiful buildings and the Gothic arches and <laughs> all of this. Um, it was a very good sermon, actually. So, but that was the start. I, I returned to church, uh, walking back into church and hearing the same hymns, uh, I was weeping. It felt like coming home. I felt like the prodigal son. I felt welcomed. And it was pretty intense for a while. Um, it was pretty intense. Uh, I would have to say I was in the paranoid schizoid position. It had a magical element to it. I was praying. Um, I was wearing a cross around my neck, which I still wear. And um, uh, gradually it settled down. I moved back uh, into the depressive position, but I needed the help of priests who are men with men who wear dresses. <laughs> uh, I was trying to become a father. It scared the hell out of me. How am I going to father this boy? So I had to take him to men I called father, and I would kneel at the rail to receive the Eucharist, and the priest would put his hand on my little boy's head and bless him. I loved this. Um, but as I settled down and became comfortable with being a father and so on, I found I needed church less and less. I drifted away. I would, I would attend at Christmas and Easter. But, um, but my home is full of crucifixes. Um, if, it depends on how you define prayer. If you define prayer as thoughts turned to God, I guess I'm praying all the time because I'm constantly thinking about theological issues and, and I'm constantly thinking about the words of Jesus and uh, finding parallels. Um, I mean, it seems to me that Jesus was the first psychoanalyst in my, or the most brilliant psychoanalyst of all time. The whole theory of projection is right there. Why, why do you complain <laughs> about a moat in your neighbor's eye when there's a beam in your eye, he says. Um, you know, so much of psychoanalytic insight is there in the New Testament, it seems, especially in the words of Jesus and in St. Paul. Um, so I became increasingly struck by these, by these parallels. Well, I mean, 
you're on fire and this is i mean it's so it's so wonderful to hear you sharing this uh these experiences and it, it's also very it's also very touching uh, what what you share with with your father and, and the cross and yeah how, how how you personally came came back came back in contact with with your faith yes. i'm wondering also just how how has it then been received by your psychoanalytic colleagues and have you had to sort of hide it or is it a, Something because now you speak very openly about it. Yes, I do. Well, um, uh, oh, I had another thought, but uh, okay, I'll, I'll, oh, I just wanted to make the point that I think I owe my return to Christianity to psychoanalysis, but because it was in my first analysis, I started having dreams, and uh, I remember this one dream in which I think I, there was a little, a very sad little boy, no doubt me, uh, my mother's alcoholism. Uh, in the dream, this little boy was sitting sort of on the curb, you know, of the street and head down, very sad. And somehow I associated to uh, a lamb, Agnus Dei, the lamb of God, the lamb is the innocent who is sacrificed. Um, I connected my sadness, my childhood pain. Um, I connected that with, with New Testament themes. Um, that deepened during my first analysis. Now, my analyst was anything but a Christian, but, um, but nevertheless, he was a good analyst. Uh, and... Um, I started reconnecting with, with it there. Now, um, how was it received? Um, I think I'm luckier than the generation of, of guys, uh, one generation older than me. Uh, we invited William Meisner, uh, MDSJ. Um, I think he was chair of psychiatry uh, in Boston. He was a senior training analyst in Boston. We invited, one of the psychoanalytic institutes invited him, and over lunch, and he had just written a wonderful book on psychoanalysis and uh, religion. And I, over lunch, I tried to get him to talk about psychoanalysis of religion. I persisted. I was irritating him. He was dodging me. Finally, he looked at me and he said, Professor Carvath, I have been invited to Toronto by a psychoanalytic institute to speak on psychoanalytic topics. If you wish me to speak on religious topics, have me invited by a religious organization and I will be happy to do so. Next subject, okay? So this man wore two hats, he rode two different horses, and he survived in the American psychoanalytic establishment by never mixing them. Okay, that's how he did it. Uh, Stanley Levy was a lifelong devout Anglo-Catholic, but he waited until he retired from psychoanalytic practice. He was well into his 70s, I believe, before he brought out a book revealing his religious uh, commitment. Um, now, by the time it came to me, I didn't actually have to do that, or maybe I just am too stubborn, I wouldn't do it. My colleagues have always known this about me. Um, 
the, the, the very atheistic classical Freudians, no doubt in private, they think it's uh, Carveth obviously didn't have enough analysis. It's an unfinished analysis. That's probably what they think. But they're too polite to say so. Uh, they don't exactly roll their eyes and they don't sanction me. Um, I, I happen to be a very popular teacher in my institute and they need me <laughs> to do a lot of teaching. Mm -hmm. And um, so they they tolerate it. I, I would like us to, to spend some time uh, talking about the book that you wrote in 2013, mm -hmm. published through Karnak, the, the Still Smaller Voice, Psychoanalytic Reflections on Guilt and Conscience. Right. Uh, in this book, you're arguing that, that we need help. We need to help people, our patients, bear their guilt, not to eliminate it. And you make some important distinctions also between the reparatory guilt in individuals that's needed for sort of development of civilization versus the persecutory guilt. And, and you further write in that, in, not in that book, but in a, in a later paper, you write that a central ingredient of the conscientious practice of psychoanalysis involves knowing the difference between the conscience and the superego. And, and that you have come to the conclusion that the only way out of persecution by the sadistic superego is through reconciliation with conscience. Yes. The only way out of persecution by the sadistic superego is through reconciliation with the conscience. Could you speak a little bit about this important differentiation and maybe also about the book, how it came to you to write this? Right. Okay. Uh, so... Um, uh, as a as a young man, uh, I did not want to have to be good. I wanted to be bad. Uh, well, I didn't want to be bad exactly, but I wanted what I wanted. I I, um, I did not want to say no to myself. Um, I I wanted self gratification, and I sought it. And in seeking self-gratification, uh, I was very selfish. I hurt people. Um, ultimately, I hurt myself. And I guess that's the point. Uh, I learned that uh, as smart as I am, I'm not smart enough. No one is smart enough uh, to be able to get away with it. I decided that ultimately nobody, nobody gets away with anything, even Donald Trump. I mean, it looks like he does, but if you put a person's life under the microscope, like if they came and lay on your couch four or five times a week, you would see that they're not getting away with anything. Um, uh, I, I realized I wasn't getting, I, I realized I was paying too high a price for my ongoing effort to have my cake and eat it too. I did not want to lead a life of having to sacrifice uh, impulses because they were wrong or out of loyalty to someone or whatever. Uh, I did not want to go straight, as they say. I didn't want to go straight. But I finally realized, I'm sorry, I have to go straight. I don't have to go straight because God says so. No. Uh, or the church says so. No. I have to go straight simply because 
anything else will end up hurting too much. You could say that I became a, a very enlightened hedonist. Uh, the only way to ultimately find, and I don't like the word happiness, I much prefer inner peace. Well, I want inner peace. Um, and the only way I'm going to find that is by becoming a good man in my own eyes, not anyone else's. One of the wise things my father said to me when I was a kid was, son, there's only one person you have to live with 24-7, and that's yourself. Boy, was he right about that. Okay, so I realized that, you know, I have to start doing right so that I can see myself as a good man. And then I'll be able to sleep at night. And then I'll be able to have peace sitting in the garden in the sunshine. Uh, okay, so I, I decided, okay, well, well what the lesson there is you must reconcile with conscience. Because otherwise your superego, which is pseudo-moral, it isn't really moral, it, it, it's cloaked in, 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 in morality, but, but really it's a sadistic, attacker, and it will go on persecute. Well, I think of the superego as the devil, basically. It's demonic. Uh, it cloaks itself uh, in a moral disguise, but it is out to destroy us. It's our enemy. Um, and um, it, will, it will make our lives a living hell. Uh, that's the way I understand heaven and hell. These are states of the soul now. Uh, I'm not talking about a future, um, but I have been in hell, and I have experienced moments of heaven, heavenly moments of grace. And uh, the way to escape from hell and uh, access heavenly moments is by turning away from what's wrong and doing what's right. Uh, so it's a personal, I feel driven by personal experience into this position. And, and then clinically, I certainly see it with patients. I see it with my patients. They, they have to stop. I, I, I don't moralize with them. At, I mean, I don't tell them that cheating on their wife is wrong. I don't tell them that going to, uh, to prostitutes is wrong. I don't tell them that stealing from the company is wrong. I wait, sitting back in the bushes until I see what the consequences are of cheating on the wife or stealing from the company. I watch what happens. Every time you do that, the migraines come. Every time you do that, the ulcers kick up. Um, and I play a little naive. Seems like there's a connection between your being unfaithful to your wife and these terrible attacks of migraine headaches. Uh, the patient gradually begins to <laughs> comes to understand that the wages of sin are death or pain or sickness or um, mistakes that lead to great losses, whatever. That's what I point out. And, and writing that book, what led you to write the book? And I mean, obviously, you've been thinking a lot about this, but I'm just that you decided to write a book about it, and this book. Well, that's an interesting thing. I, I was always a, a peer-reviewed journal article writer. As an academic, I never wrote a book. Um, 
what I was in my late sixties when I wrote that book. Uh, I had progressed through the ranks. I'd become a full professor because I published a fair amount, at least one or two big articles a year. But I didn't, I had an inhibition about, I never published my doctoral thesis. The idea of publishing a book intimidated me. And then a very strange thing happened. Um, in around 2011 or 12, or I guess 2011, um, I was teach. I had this book by Eli Sagan on my bookshelf for many years. You know, you buy books, they've got great titles, they look good, you put them on the shelf, but you don't get around to reading them. One day, for whatever reason, um, if I want to move into the paranoid schizoid position, I would say that God led me to take that book off the shelf. I usually don't think that way or talk that way, but sometimes, anyway, I took the book down, I read it. It blew my socks off because Sagan had answered, addressed and answered many of the things that had puzzled me about Freudian theory, bothered me for many years, especially the superego issues. Um, and I started teaching uh, his book to my students. And one day a student said, so who is this guy Sagan anyway? And I was embarrassed. I didn't know who he was really. So I went and did a search on the internet and I could find out nothing about him. He seemed to have no digital footprint at all. But finally, I came up with an address in New Jersey. So I wrote him a letter. And then a week or so later, I'm sitting in my office and the phone rings and this squeaky, hello, Carmen, this is Eli Sagan. We started talking. We started having every second Sunday, we had a, a phone call for a couple of hours. I read through all of his big books. And um, we talked about all of that. And then he was reading my stuff. Next thing I'm writing a book. I needed some unfinished business with a father. My father was a family doctor. He, he, he was a self-taught uh, kind of intellectual guy, but he wasn't the real deal. Sagan was the real deal. You know, um, he, very impressive intellect. He'd written all of these big books, suddenly I'm writing a book. Uh, I needed that identification. I needed his blessing. And boy, did he ever give me uh, his blessing. Uh, he, we started to disagree. He made the distinction between superego and conscience. And it's like he threw the ball. I caught the ball and I'm running with it. Okay. I'm running with it. And he's saying, slow down, slow down. Uh, you know, you don't, 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 you're going too far. You're going too far with this distinction. You know, and he, he wasn't a trained analyst. He was a, an intellectual, but he was not a psychoanalyst. And I'm taking his distinction into psychoanalytic quarters. And he's thinking, no. Um, and then suddenly about three or four weeks before he died, I was up north, like he barely had a cell signal, but he got a message through to me. Um, uh, he, he, Point, told me to read a particular chapter in Palakon's History of Christian Theology. He had come across St. Paul, Saint Paul's distinction between the law and the gospel. And he had recognized that his own distinction was that, his distinction between conscience and superego was echoing that. And he realized that I was running with this because I had a Christian background as well as a psychoanalytic background. 
somehow my 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 reading of the New Testament has set me up to be ready to make that distinction. Um, and then reading Pelican and so on had reinforced it. So that's how uh, that's how I came to write the book. Eli um, uh, put, uh, started me off, and then at the end, he gave me another push, which it would, probably would not have been easy for him to do because he was Jewish. And that whole distinction between Moses and Christ is uh, that makes Jews pretty uncomfortable. So he, I don't think that was a welcome thing exactly to him, but intellectually he realized how it confirmed his own insight. And, and could you just help us shortly to sort of, um, you're staying a little bit with law versus gospel and superego versus conscious. Uh, just okay. translate it a bit, yeah? Well, I mean, my understanding of Jesus is precisely that he is an attacker of religion. He did a savage attack on the religion of his time, which happened to be uh, Judaism, the, the, the temple. Um, um, he's the, the Sabbath is not made, man is not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. Um, uh, he was constantly violating the Jewish law for humane purposes. Uh, he was a critic of the superego, the law. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone, he says to the mob who are stoning a woman caught in adultery. Um, so Jesus is conscience rebelling against law. But for a time, I went overboard, and I joined Freud, Ferenczi, and Alexander, who said that the psychoanalytic cure is the complete elimination of the superego. For a while, I went for that, but then I came back to the gospel, because Jesus says, think not that I come to abolish the law and the prophets. I come to fulfill them, which I then interpret as our goal is to subordinate the superego to the conscience. The superego must be disciplined by the conscience. We still need a superego. We need a book of rules. We need to know the law, but the law has to be subordinated to the conscience. Yeah. And um, this is uh, probably very difficult to, to answer, but in, in, in in once uh, in your practice and with your patients or or within yourself, the differentiation between the two. I mean, is there anything you can say as a technique or as a, as, a, as a sort of help on the way for for people? You know, I know this is a long and hard work. Yeah, differentiate. Differentiate I mean, the voice. Differentiate well, the voice. I, I think the simplest way to think about it is that this. The, the, the conscience is governed by love, and it speaks in the language of love. Uh, and and there is a bite to conscience, um, but but at the same time as conscience is saying, "Dawn, you're on the wrong path. You're on the. I'm not sleeping well because my conscience is uneasy. 
Um, you're on the wrong path, Don, but that voice is also my father who will welcome me home and kill the fatted calf. And there'll be a celebration because I heard him and I turned back onto the right path. So this is a loving conscience that want, I mean, when he, when he reproaches me for being on the wrong path, there are tears in his eyes because he doesn't like reproaching the son he loves. It makes him very sad um, to have to, to see that his son has gone off the path. Um, and he is delighted to welcome me back. The superego is a sadist. Um, one of my greatest personal images of the superego is from a great uh, film, um, uh, uh, Fanny and Alexander. Uh, uh, who's the filmmaker, the famous Bergman, Ingmar Bergman. Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. And so the two children, the boy and the girl, their father dies, and their mother marries this stuffy Lutheran pastor of some kind, of the kind that, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child. And he likes beating the children. And I wish that Ingmar Bergman had done a close-up on him when he's beating the children to reveal that he's got an erection because he's getting off on beating the children, because he's a sadist. That's my model of the superego. It speaks this moral language, but it really is fueled by the id. This is pure Freud. Freud said the superego is id aggression turned back against the ego. That's the, the first layer of the superego, id hostility turned back on me. Second layer, internalization of the culture via the parental superegos. But what Freud fails to point out is that the culture that's internalized is racist, sexist, heterosexist, classist, etc. Freud gives us no critique of the contents of the superego, but it's basically ideological crap that fills the superego. You know, not entirely. Look, some people go to church and, and what do they hear in church? They hear, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Every once in a while, the superego says something coincident with conscience. And some people who are, are, are particularly healthy people, they have a superego that is almost entirely indistinguishable from conscience. Hmm. That's a great situation to be in. You're hearing the right message from both superego and conscience because they coincide never perfectly. With humans, nothing is ever perfect, obviously. But um, yeah, so I think, I think when you hear the hate in the voice, the moral voice, when you hear the cruelty, mm. you know you're dealing with superego. Yes. I think, and I've said too, that patients depend on us to have a conscience. Um, uh, we mustn't moralize, we mustn't be super ego-ish with patients. My classical colleagues, they may disapprove of my Christianity, but they know that I, they know that I know that I must not be super egoish with my patients. But mm. 
the error that they fall into is because they've lost the distinction between superego and conscience. Mm. They, 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 they've not, they're not able to recognize that while we mustn't be superegoish, we do need at times to be the voice of conscience. We need to have a conscience and every once in a while we need to voice it. Mm. Well, I think that's maybe where unions, you know, um, uh, use a little bit the, uh, not, yeah, the concept and the experience of the self. Jung uh, also said, you know, that uh, the, he saw Christ as, a, the, the self as an image of Christ in a sense. Uh, I'm not saying that I fully agree with him on this one, but, but just to say that I think the sort of uh, looking for self or what you said about the union sort of, I think there is something of that there, you know, looking for not these anonymous figures or the sadistic figures, but looking for that voice uh, that, yes. you know, Jung then so constellated in different uh, formations. But but I, also, I have to yeah. say, I agree with your interview, we, uh, Sean McGrath, I was very impressed uh, with him. Um, and, uh, you know, he's saying that uh, Jesus is not an archetype. Um, um, uh, I think, oh, you asked why I turned from Jung back to Freud. I think I forgot to say that uh, even back then, I read Martin Buber's essay on Jung. And Martin Buber, as a religious Jew, he put his finger right on the same thing that McGrath put his finger on, that Jung, Jung is, is a Gnostic. And Gnosticism is a heresy for both Judaism and for Christianity. And um, when, you, when you relocate God in the unconscious, you're relocating God in, in part of the self. And, oh, I wish I could quote it exactly, but one of my most favorite passages of all time is from G.K. Chesterton. And it, he's writing about what he calls uh, the God within. He says, of all possible gods, uh, save me from the God within. Uh, he says, uh, um, you all know uh, how it works. Uh, anyone who knows anyone from the higher thought center will know how it works. Uh, when Jones comes to worship the God within, what that means is that Jones comes to worship Jones. Uh, he says, you know, uh, Christianity came to um, uh, get us to worship the God without, not mm. the God within. But I also, I mean, I, I agree with you. There's a lot to one can critique, but I, I also believe that maybe um, it's important to differentiate because you did never say that there's a God within. He said there's an image, there's an imago dei, there's an image of God within. Yeah, so there's there's that's there's okay. that. But but then of course you know taking literally Jungianism and many of those ideas become uh, yeah they become problematic and there is something about sort of psychologizing religion and turning it on into navel gazing that can happen. But I do must say in my experience okay. in my practice it's uh, I think that the Jungian analysis done right helps people at times to find back and deepen their faith, you know? Okay, okay. Um, but, but that all that said, some people probably use also, you know, psychoanalysis or union analysis as their religion, I'm sure. Oh, totally. But, uh, but the way totally I understand did. it is, it's like, you know, this is what, what we are doing, we plow in the field. But you're quite right. I, I respect what you're saying. You're absolutely right. And the same thing can be said about the Freudian tradition. 
people take Freud literally. Um, I'm not a Lacanian, but, but one thing I appreciate about Lacan is that he metaphorizes psychoanalysis. It's not about that stupid little piece of flesh called the penis. It's about the phallus, which is a very important symbol. Um, so he metaphorizes psychoanalysis, and that's very important. Once having read Lacan, your, your understanding of Freud is quite different. So I see the same would apply to you. You can take it literally, or you can uh, treat it more metaphorically and symbolically. Yes. Well, when in your, I will jump a little bit now, but in your lectures on, on YouTube, you're also um, analyzing the sort of foundational positions of various psychoanalysts or psychoanalytic schools. You're talking about uh, some psychoanalysts as representing a tragic existential position versus others sort of having a more what you call a romantic position. Yeah. And, and, and you say that, yeah, you also say that one of the reasons that you like Klein and Winnicott so much is that they understand the, the tragedy of the human condition and that mental suffering is not always somebody's fault, that we can minimize our frustration, but we cannot completely take them away. Could you speak just a little bit about this uh, differentiation? Okay. Yeah. Well, let me start by removing Winnicott from that list. Okay. Um, um, Klein, yes. Not so much Winnicott. Win Winnicott is, um, there are so many Winnicotts. There is no one Winnicott. Uh, I, he was not a systematic thinker. He was more like a painter. Mm. Um, he would see something and he would write a paper. And it happened to be a Kleinian paper. But the same year, he'd see something and he'd write a paper and it would be almost like pure Heinz Kohak. Um, and, and it's not as if he started one place and moved to another. Throughout his career, he, was, he felt no need to systematize. Um, and some of the Winnicott's I love, like hate in the counter-transference. I love that. Um, uh, but uh, some of his papers are very much at the root of what nowadays is called relational psychoanalysis, um, very close to self-psychology. In fact, some people have said that there are certain sentences in Heinz Kohut that look like they could have come from Winnicott. Um, that's not the Winnicott I'm in love with. Um, uh, there are, uh, so I, I, I'm not sure that Winnicott, well, at when, he's, when Winnicott is being Kleinian, he's got it right. Like when he, he talks about the capacity for concern. That's a pure uh, Kleinian paper where he talks about how we're advancing from persecutory guilt to being able to actually have mature reparative guilt or concern for the object. That's Klein. He's just being Kleinian there. So I've got mixed views of, of, of uh, Winnicott. Um, Klein and Freud, um, they both, have a way of understanding the tragic uh, rather than the romantic. Now, I don't like the way Freud does it. He does it through drive theory, which is a mistake. You know, like he's saying, we're saddled by these antisocial drives, which are natural. It's not Eric Fromm necrophilia, which for Fromm is a pathological turning to death away from life. It's a sickness. No, Freud's thanatos is a natural, innate biologically grounded drive towards death. That's nonsense, that doesn't exist. Uh, but by holding his drive theory that we are saddled with these antisocial drives, what he is sort of like 
also saying is that there is a tragic conflict in human existence between our rationality, ego, and our morality, superego, which is forever in battle with this antisocial, biologically grounded core. And that's a tragic situation. I don't like that he based his tragic view on a false biologism. That's why I prefer Klein, because Klein retains the tragic, but she doesn't ground it in drive the way that Freud did, because for her, drive has a completely different meaning. She's not interested in the biological source of the drive. By drive, she means a motive. She means a fantasy, spelt with a PH. The, the drives are stories, stories of hating, stories of loving, so, stories of killing, stories of being killed. And she's saying that we are all uh, born or we're, we from birth, we're moving into the paranoid schizoid position where there will be splitting, all children will split, all children will have paranoid anxiety, no matter how good the caretakers, the most attuned caretaker in the world can't save the baby from feeling persecuted by an all bad object. Um, it's totally false that she ignores the real parenting, that myth about Melanie Klein. Every page, she talks about how crucial it is that the child be able to access the mother's real goodness and love, because only by taking that in can she counteract the inevitable image of the mother as a witch persecutor. So um, that is a tragic perspective. We can do our best for children, but related to this, directly related to this, is what I find sort of shocking and kind of funny in a way. Psychoanalysts, do not want to hear something that is perfectly obvious, which is that good parents sometimes have bad children and bad parents sometimes have good children. Well, we can't stand facing that fact because we're so invested in the idea that proper parenting is gonna produce good kids. It isn't so, it isn't so. It's the failure of the psych disciplines to understand an existential perspective. I mean, children have choices. Of course, they make choices in conditions that they haven't chosen, um, but they make choices, and sometimes they make bad choices, and sometimes one bad choice can take you down an increasingly bad path. I guess parents kind of know that. They, 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 they get worried when their kids are hanging out with a bad crowd because they know that the bad crowd can take their good kid to hell, which is true. Um, but this naive idea that uh, children are completely shaped by the parenting they receive, it, it even entered into psychoanalysis. A senior member of our society ended up losing his license and being drummed out because it turned out he was sleeping with his patients for like many years. Finally, enough women came forward that they finally had to kick him out. Well, his analysands were held under suspicion unless they went through a completely new analysis, which is like the Jewish ritual of the mikvah to purify themselves. And if they didn't have a second analysis, their careers were kind of stalled because the establishment figured, oh, if he was their analyst, chances are they're gonna start boundary violating too. Because bad parents produce bad children, good parents produce good children, 
It's all nonsense. Moving forward to, 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 to recent times, in 2020, uh, you published a paper, Psychoanalysis is Spirituality. And in that paper, you write that uh, while others fail to practice what they preach, we psychoanalysts refuse to preach what we practice. We disguise our ethic of love beneath a medical facade. And further, you write that we lie to ourselves and others and call it mental health when it really amounts to salvation. Yes, yes. And you, you write further that, uh, that through facilitating the progression from narcissism to object love, from paranoid schizoid position to persecutory anxiety and shame to the depressive reparative position, uh, it, it's uh, that you describe it as a conversion, that it's a yes. work of conversion. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I was asked just recently to speak to the Ottawa Psychoanalytic Society, and I'm, I've been thinking about the topic, and uh, the title that I've come up with so far is um, Transformation, uh, Clinical Psychoanalysis as Deconstruction and Conversion. Mm -hmm. That's the title of the paper. Uh, two things, deconstruction and conversion. Um, well, let me start with the, the, the conversion, because that's what you're asking. I mean, I think that in a deep psychoanalysis, and I think this is a difference between psychoanalytic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. In psychoanalytic psychotherapy, we do a lot of things uh, to help people cope with their anxiety, to relieve their depression, and so on and so forth. But it's more like... Um, repairing a house rather than gutting it and rebuilding it from the inside out. I think, I think of a deep psychoanalysis as something like gutting an old house and rebuilding it from inside out. Um, so we're talking about a, a, tra a radical transformation from, if I want to speak in religious terms, from Adam to Christ. Old Adam, the old sinner, to Christ. That's a conversion. Um, I think there's a perfect correspondence here between that and trying to help a person, as Freud says, transcend narcissism in favor of object love. I mean, all these people who think they're in love, but the person they're in love with simply stands for the self they were, like the old guy who falls in love with a young woman. She just represents his lost youth. He doesn't even know who she is, except her body is smooth instead of wrinkly. Um, uh, or the self that I am, or the self I one day would like to be. Why is she involved with him? Because he's 30 years older than her and already has tenure at the university or is already a training analyst or whatever. Uh, it's a shortcut for her to take the elevator quickly up mm. <laughs> to the top. This is all narcissism. These relationships usually blow up in a matter of months or weeks because there's no real object relation there at all. So to help a person move out of that field of narcissism into recognizing that other people are actually real and beginning to actually care about their welfare, um, that's, a, that's a conversion. I mean, that's a radical personality transformation. Uh, to help a person move out of the paranoid schizoid state where life is a jungle and it's kill or be killed, 
that amazing show, Succession, on, uh, on <laughs> I mean, that show is about life in the paranoid schizoid position, also life in <laughs> late stage uh, capitalism. Uh, uh, it's like rolling over a rock. Um, um, that is a sinful, that's what sin looks like. That's what hell looks like. Um, uh, and we're, we're trying to help save people from these hellish states. And they will continue to send themselves to hell unless they decide to convert and be good. Uh, and we're trying to help them achieve that. Um, not by sermonizing, not by wagging our fingers, not by reproaching, but by closely analyzing the consequences for them of their own choices, their own paths that they're choosing. We help them see how they're putting themselves in hell, which opens up for them the option to stop putting themselves in hell. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 think, I think we are out to convert our patients. But in a very subtle and respectful and patient way. Hmm. And what did you say in that paper? You also said there's deconstruction and conversion. Could you say something short about... Oh, well, deconstruction is so important because patients um, are trying to convert us. They're trying to convert us to their worldview. So uh, I'm, I've been working for three years, three times a week, with a man only a few years younger than me, very sophisticated, psychologically sophisticated man. Um, and only recently, in the third year of his analysis, are we getting down to the deconstructive task. His father was a very wealthy businessman, and uh, he became angry at his father early in life, and he started rebelling against his father, um, and... Uh, left the business and I, I will say any more other than that. Um, he's a very talented, bright man who could have done so many things in so many fields, multiply talented, but he has always capped his success. He's never let himself go for it. Um, he's never let himself become who he could be. And this is all grounded in his deep conviction that he is and was a disappointment to his father. He walks through life feeling disappointed in himself because he disappointed his father. Okay, so I challenged him. I said, you have given me absolutely zero evidence that your father was disappointed in you. You, you told me about the time when you refused to go back to that special school, but your father was disappointed in himself. He said, I'm a bad father. Well, okay, your father was disappointed in himself, but he never told you he was disappointed in you. But you, you live within this conviction. This is your ideology. I am a disappointment. Okay, uh, who said this long before me? Ernst Kreese wrote a paper called 
the personal myth. He thought of the analytic task as over time becoming aware of the patient's personal myth, uh, which is something that they take so for granted that they don't even know it's a myth. It's in Kleinian terms, it's a pH fantasy. It's an unconscious fantasy that they are living or that is living them. And they don't even know they're captured by this fantasy. Um, I have so many patients that at a certain point, usually it takes a fair amount of time into the analysis for me to wake up and get a sense of the myth because these patients believe it so much that they get you believing it. They tell it to you, it seems plausible, you accept it and you start, you, you know, but then at a certain point you, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, I have a patient I've worked with for many years. His core fantasy is that he's really bad. He's rotten at the core. He's evil at the core. Well, he's not. He's actually a very nice man. He's a good father. He's a loving husband. He's an honest man. He's a hardworking colleague. But he believes he's rotten at the core. Well, that's a delusion. I also like Leonard Schengold, who wrote a whole book called Delusions of Everyday Life. We used to think it was only psychotics who had delusions. Are you kidding? Everybody has delusions. And these, these patients I've mentioned are delusional in this sense. I'm trying to get them to wake up and realize they're delusional and call it into question. I mean, my God, we, we see through ideological Marxism. We see through ideological Freudianism. We see through other ideologies. We have to see through these personal ideologies. Um, so that's the deconstructive a, a, a task of psychoanalysis. And of course, it goes hand in hand with the conversion because the, the delusion is held in the paranoid schizoid position. That's where delusions are. Hmm. When you move out of PS into D, you acquire the capacity to begin to doubt. Uncertainty becomes a possibility. I mean, ideological certainty is paranoid schizoid. So we're trying to convert people from certainty to doubt and skepticism in certain areas. That can become an ideology too, totalized skepticism, no. But, but we need to develop a capacity to call things into question and look at both sides. These examples are splitting too, right? I mean, that patient who thinks he's rotten at the core, that's a split. He's all bad. Uh, that other patient, that's a split. He's entirely a disappointment. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, deconstruction and conversion. And, and, and is the conversion, I mean, I think when we, when we, when we use that word, word uh, many people associate it also to the religious conversion. And I'm thinking, maybe at least myself, I'm thinking of something very radical, you know, and it can be a conversion, but our work is so slow and it takes such a long time. And, but, but, but conversion is still, that, that's the word you would use for it. Somehow it's a slow conversion. Well, a slow conversion, a gradual conversion. Yeah. But I think it deserves still, it's not a sudden conversion. It's not like, like Paul on the road to, to <laughs> Damascus. Um, um, but, it's, um, but it ends up being, I think it's, it can be so profound, profound. It deserves the word because when you switch from an entirely self-interested approach to life 
to um, grab, grasping the need for sacrifice, to actually be able to sacrifice your self-interest out of loyalty and commitment to others, um, to say no to yourself, the ability to say no to yourself, which is the ability to be a good father to yourself or a good mother to yourself. No, I'm not going to let myself have that pleasure or gratification because I have loyalty and commitment over here. You're a very different person now. Well, a few months ago, I very much enjoyed the, the podcast interview or conversation that you had on psychoanalysis on and off the couch with Harvey Schwartz. And uh, at the end of that uh, interesting conversation, he, he tries to summarize some of your insights. And he uses the words, uh, okay, if I understand you right, it says, an advanced in civilization requires each of us to care about each other and care about our impact on, on each other. And then you say as a response, I would make it more challenging than that by saying that the advance of civilization depends on finally coming to understand what was meant in the Judeo-Christian doctrine of the fall of man. You also empathize there the importance of us needing to know how sinful we are as human beings. Could, could, could you- He didn't like that, he got off the air no, exactly. as quickly as he could. <laughs> yeah, I thought we'd take off the, yeah, the thread there because I thought it got, got really interesting there at the end. Right, right, right. You could just see he. Oh my God, he's headed off in a on a religious kick. Let's get out of here. Let's end this interview. Um, well, I, I I meant what I said. I mean, I agree with him. Of course, he's right that we do need to develop a capacity to actually transcend narcissism and begin to care about the welfare of others and the welfare of the society and so on. <clears throat> but. I do believe that we need to be able to uh, acknowledge our sinfulness. Um, I always laugh because many years ago, I found a letter to the editor in the Toronto Globe and Mail, and I clipped it out and I put it in a file folder in the library for my students to read. Um, it's a woman and uh, she lost any religious interest she'd had as a teen. But now she's a mother of two young girls, and she's not happy with the level of moral education that her daughters are receiving in the public school system. So to supplement that, she's been going, taking the girls around to various churches, looking for a church that has a nice nursery school that would teach the kids. Um, okay, but you know, wherever she goes, the pastor or the minister or the priest in their sermons, they're all telling her she's a sinner and she isn't. <laughs> and, and, and I'm thinking, here's a woman who's convinced she's not a sinner. I can't get through two seconds without knowing I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm always sinning one way or another. Uh, fortunately, as I've gotten older, the sins have, uh, are diminishing in significance but I'm still a sinner. Um, I'm not just a sinner, but I am a sinner. Uh, that is what it is to be human, is to be a sinner. 
But in today's society, this culture of narcissism, people can't stand it. They get enraged at the idea that they should have to acknowledge. I think it's because of, of splitting, frankly. I think that uh, especially very narcissistic or borderline-y kinds of people, they can't acknowledge any sin because everything becomes totalized. If they acknowledge a little bit of sin, pretty soon it's going to go like ink in the water and they're going to be all bad and then they'll have to kill themselves. So they can't admit a little bit of badness because it will be totalized. Hmm. So that's what I meant. I think the ability to move into that space where you have a very jaundiced view of yourself a very suspicious view of yourself. I hear what I say, you know, and then I think a part of me and my wife, my wife has even more of a jaundiced view of me than I do. And so she helps with this. Really, Don? You just said that? Really? Uh, come on. Um, um, you have to be suspicious of yourself because we're liars. We are liars. And uh, we're, we're selfish. And um, we can make great progress, but never total progress. The devil is always whispering in our ear. But I'm also thinking when you said, yeah, I mean, to the importance to, to realize that we are sinners, but I'm, I'm also reminded of what you just shared about the patient of yours who feels he is, he, he's, he's a bad person. He's just a bad... That's a, yeah, he's totalized it, right? He's totalized it. And that I'm differentiation saying, between... We're, all, we're always a little bit bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the differentiation. Little, yeah, let's avoid the totalization. That's another another split. I mean... Look, some people are, are very bothered by an excessive sense of sinfulness. Certain psychotic patients, uh, a guy was found living in a cardboard box in a ravine here in Toronto. He'd gone off his meds and he, be he believed he stank. He was a stinker. He had to retreat from human society because he gave off such a foul smell. Now, living in a cardboard box for months, he probably did start to smell. Uh, but um, that's a psychotic delusion of, 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 of foulness, right? The patient I mentioned is not nearly that severe. It's a mild neurotic level delusion of having been a disappointment or being rotten at the core. It's not on the psychotic level, but it's all just a matter of degree. So no, I mean, I don't want, when I say we have to admit that we are sinners, I don't want us walking around beating on ourselves. I want us to have a forgiving attitude towards ourselves. I want us to have an ironic attitude, irony towards oneself. Um, being able to laugh at ourselves um, and see the ridiculousness of all of our stances and self-images and whatever, our theories of ourselves. Um, it's a more forgiving, ironic, humorous, of course I'm still tempted, etc. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm also just thinking about this to be a sinner without belief or if you're a sinner without God. I mean, yeah, it's also us maybe then helping people but to, to a pretty, yeah, pretty uh, em how should I say? Yeah, a pretty empty space for some people, yeah? 
to realize this sinful nature or like but but to move from there to the more forgiving yeah oh absolutely you don't want people facing their sinfulness unless at the same time they see the clear possibility of of a father welcoming welcoming them home like the prodigal son yeah you're sinning but you could be good you you could love yourself you could be loved by the people you care about um why don't you avail yourself of this available love um no i would never want to point someone's sinfulness out to them if they don't have an image of another life of being lovable to themselves and to others of course mm. yeah but i don't frame it as god no. i mean i don't i don't have any supernatural sense of a god who's well no that's a lie okay now i'm being skeptical of myself here that's a lie as i've said elsewhere nowadays well i said it in the paper you cited psychoanalysis is spirituality if someone asks me nowadays um don do you believe in god or don't you i say yes i do and no i don't and then they say you can't have it both ways i say i say to them you haven't understood freud freud the freudian revolution is that we are all split we are all contradictory and of course in saying that he's in touch with the new testament because the new testament says we're all split between old adam and christ so here again christianity and freudianism completely correspond there is no unitary self freud was embarrassed about this he was he was ashamed of his interest in numerology and he of course projected his own uh, those those kinds of mystical onto jung and then he got rid of jung because he couldn't own that as a part of himself um so i have a paranoid schizoid position i visit it frequently and uh, when i went for surgery i was praying before the surgery and i woke up and <laughs> there was a muslim family and of course the grandparents the aunts the like there must have been 15 people in the space next to me in the recovery room um and i'm coming out of morphine and they're all praying in arabic and i'm thinking oh god i'm so glad they're there it was like i was praying with them and uh i felt the presence of god um and, but i don't believe in god but apparently i do believe in god okay i do and i don't that's the honest position on this it seems to me thank you for listening For more content, subscribe to our podcast or find us on our YouTube channel. Psychonauts should be free. <laughs>